2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, are we going to be talking about hot lava today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to be talking about hot lava. Um this was a, this is an episode that I was inspired uh uh, for us to put together, because uh, I mean, lava is always cool. L- As we'll get into in a minute, They're like l- lava, lakes of lava, rivers of lava, it pops up in a lot of our, our favorite uh, science fiction and fantasy franchises. Uh, but of course, in the real world, it's also incredibly interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, there's something almost kind of holy about being either in the presence of lava or being in places where lava has recently been. And standard terminology insert, the term for molten rock when it's still
0: bottled up below the Earth's surface is magma. And the exact same stuff is called lava once it breaches the surface in an eruption. So if it's on the surface of the Earth, basically if you're looking at it, if you're watching it form a river across the the black fields of rock, it is now lava. Right, Yes.
1: Now, I recently had the, the privilege—this just was just last week, actually. Um, just a little over a week ago, I had the privilege of getting to hike the Kilauea-Iki uh, Trail— uh, in Volcano National Park in Hawaii, uh, with my family and with some friends, uh, this is a hike that I'd done 20 years ago, and I always wanted to do again. I Always wanted to, you know, be able to bring my my, my wife on the trip, and then you know, bring my son on the the trip. And uh, if if anyone out there is considering going uh, to the island of Hawaii, uh, I, I highly recommend this particular walk. It's it's very popular. It's not it's not a trade secret or anything. It's a 3.3 mile loop. Uh, It takes you around, down, and then straight across Kilauea Iki Crater. Uh, today, just, just like, uh, you know, it was 20 years ago, it's this beautiful landscape of black, cracked volcanic terrain. Um, uh, with uh, with vegetation, uh, uh, you know, at the top. So the, the the hike itself gives you this this wonderful transformation. You get to walk through almost this kind of rainforest setting. Uh, then you, you you know you go down uh, the edge of the crater, and then you go into the bottom of the crater, where it's l- like another planet. It's it's truly unlike anywhere else I've been. Just a really unique and beautiful place. One of the things I remember
0: that we talked about in our episodes on the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Uh, mm-hmm was about how you can track sort of the the length of time since the last eruption or or major disturbance by how far vegetation has re-encroached on the, on the volcano. And that, mm-hmm. you know, so th- there was this horrible eruption in, what was it, 79 CE of, uh, of Vesuvius, and it turned the area around there into, I'm sure, it, you know, eliminated most life within a certain radius from the, uh, from the eruption site. Uh, but then you get to see just like over the years, the trees and all the, the, the vegetation just pours back in, the greening of the, of the cone. And, mm-hmm. and there's
1: something I always found beautiful about that because it's like the trees don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the tree it's it's always it's it's kind of interesting in both directions because you see footage of um of of the volcanic activity that took place in this crater back in uh, 1959. And you, you know, you see the plant. The plants are just hanging out. They, they don't, they, you know, they don't care. They're like, oh, "No, I'm still doing okay. I haven't been. Uh, the leaves have not been burnt from me yet." So you, you'll see me in the foreground. And then likewise, you go back uh, there today, and you see the, you know, the plants making their comeback. Um, uh, you know, right at the fissure point. Right at the place where uh, uh, where all of this uh, volcanic activity was uh, was happening, where this lava fountain was shooting high into the sky. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, like I say, if you go to to, to Iki uh, Crater today, Kilauea Iki Crater, you can you can walk cr- across it, uh, you know, all perfectly safe. Um, the, the the lava uh, that was underneath your feet is all com- completely solid now, or thought to be, uh, probably has been completely solid since the I think the mid nineties they say, but uh, but all this was different in the past. Uh, Hawaii is of course a, a young island. Uh, formed from five separate shield volcanoes. If you were to travel back in time a million years, the island wouldn't be there at all. Uh, Travel back to uh, the mid-1950s, and this particular crater was there, but it contained an entire forest uh, at the bottom of it. Um, And uh, this would have been roughly 800 feet or 244 meters down into the crater. But then in 1959, uh, there was this, um, this eruption event, a spectacular eruption from a, a half mile fissure in the crater wall. And then in 17 separate episodes, lava gushed from this vent, lasting five weeks total, flooding the crater with lava halfway up that 800 foot crater wall.
0: So, forming the, the iconic set piece of many wonderful
1: uh, movies and, and video games, especially, too, The Lake of Lava. That's right. Um, And there's some stunning images of this. Uh, um, I included one in our uh, notes here, Joe. These just come from the... um uh, from nps.gov, uh, you, can, you can look up all sorts of information there about the eruption of Kilauea Iki. Uh, there's some great photography. Uh, there's also some wonderful footage. If you go on YouTube and you look for the eruption of Kilauea 1959 through 1960, this is uh, like a wonderfully old-school documentary piece about uh, mm-hmm. this event. Uh, with all sorts of just glorious, unreal footage of, uh, of of you know churning lava, spewing lava fountains, and so forth, uh, which is wonderful to watch either before or after you you know physically visit the uh, the crater.
0: I also love the dragnet-style Department of Interior seal that appears right at the beginning.
1: Yeah, and the uh, the narrator reminds me of the narrator from uh, a lot of the old uh, Walt Disney Goofy shorts, where, like, Goofy is doing different sports. <laughs> so you expect Goofy to show up at some point as a volcanologist, but uh, but he does not.
0: Gorsh, that would chore your bones.
1: <laughs> so, uh, anyway, this is a, a spectacular event. A fountain of lava shot uh, 1,900 feet uh, into the air. Uh, dropping gouts of magma at times the size of bathtubs or described as being the size of bathtubs. And the resulting lake of lava was was most impressive. I've seen it described in park literature as a, quote, churning lava lake. Eventually enough lava filled the crater that the crack was covered up. Uh, Then the molten lava drained back into the vent at a speed four times faster than it filled. Uh, The National Park Service describes this occurrence as, quote, a noisy whirlpool of red-hot liquid lava and black slabs of solid rock. Metal. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't get any more metal than this. Um, and there's actually footage in that uh, video I mentioned where you get to see uh, a shot of a lava vortex, and it's pretty impressive. So even though if you visit this particular location today, you don't get to um, you know you don't get to see this this impressive lake of lava in the Crater. You can you can imagine it like the landscape still speaks of it. Uh, it. It the landscape looks like the the top of a of a of a, of a sheet of brownies you know that is cooled. And has therefore, um, um, you know, broken as it's kind of collapsed. Because that's essentially what happened with the, with the lake of lava as, this, uh, as the, the surface uh, drops down and, and cracks open. Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, dynamic landscape that, that not only, f- I mean, on one level it feels like a place that is not Earth. But on another level it's like it's this wonderful, almost holy insight into like just how dynamic the planet is and how alive our planet is. Uh-huh. Now, t- to, uh, to sort of get to the point of the episode, though, I guess, yeah, the idea of a lake of lava, a sea of lava, or, you know, f- certainly think of any footage uh, you've, you've seen of lava flows. Uh, when, when rock becomes uh, more or less like a liquid, we can't help but imagine the fantastic possibilities, right? Ships uh, sailing on a sea of lava, boats riding rivers of fire, cartoon characters surfing down lava on uh, some sort of fantastic surfboard i think one of the most um you know obvious and perhaps outrageous examples that i can think to uh, comes from the first season of the mandalorian the star wars uh television series in which we see our heroes ride a droid piloted barge down a subterranean canal of lava which i think is also supposed to, be, supposed to be part of like the sewage system i'm not sure exactly how this uh how this planet uh um <laughs> is, is really using its its lava here but um it's, it's a fun it's a fun sequence, like within the, the fantasy of the show it's it's really cool it's very you know it's very hellish. it's kind of like uh, you know the river sticks, uh, meets lava and, and and here's here's some sort of a ridiculous droid you know in the, in the back of the barge pushing it along um, and then i I guess this sort of thing happens in a lot of uh, video games. I'm thinking like surely this happens in Mario, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely in Super
0: Mario sixty four, there's uh, there's at least a couple levels with things floating around in lava, and, okay. <laughs> uh, and the one for the Super Nintendo, I think also when you get toward the end, closer to to Bowser's palace, there's there's stuff floating around in lava a lot.
1: Yeah, it, it just makes sense. You gotta have your you gotta have your lava uh, levels in, in just about any video game. It's bad um, guy stuff. Yeah, it's bad guy stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean you look at other movies. Where does the bad guy build his lair? And it's in a volcano, of course. Right. right. Um, we even talked about one recently on uh, Weird House Cinema. There was the, the Hercules movie where we had, um, uh, we, we had the villain uh, uh, using a hideout in a volcano. And of course, the, the final showdown takes place within the volcano over a lake of lava. Oh yeah, what was the funny thing about the sword there or something? Oh, there were multiple funny things going on. But yeah, that they had to, that was where the rainbow sword, well, you know, he had a rainbow sword and then there was the sword that could uh, that was holding the phoenix in place. There was a lot going on in that particular volcanic layer. Now, I was looking around for other examples of this sort of trope. Uh, I went to tvtropes.com, which is always a fun place uh to peruse this sort of thing. I was reminded that um, in The Hobbit, the Desolation of Smog, this being the second Hobbit film from peter jackson there 's a scene where Thorin rides a wheelbarrow on molten gold, um, you know sort of surfing in it i I had completely forgotten about this whole this whole sequence in the uh, the movie where they they add this bit where they try to defeat the dragon by uh, covering him with molten gold oh i i, I don
0: 't remember that either. I did see that movie somehow.
1: Yeah, I just saw it last year, and I I, I kind of blanked out on all this. But then after I read about it, I'm like, okay, I vaguely remember that because it's kind of a pretty scene where the dragon gets covered in gold, but then it you know cracks the gold and he's free from the gold. They ripped that straight out of the end of Alien Three. That's right. Yeah. What yeah, do they cover? They, liquid lead or something? Yeah, yeah. It's a
0: lead works, and they cover mm-hmm. the alien in some. Yeah, I guess it's lead. It's some kind of molten metal, and then you think it's dead, but then it just jumps out. Oh yeah it certainly wasn't in the book i don't remember that in the hobbit uh, novel at all no well i also don't remember in the hobbit novel in the novel did they like ride barrels down a river is that in there
1: yeah they did ride barrels i do remember the barrel the row where they rode in barrels they were kind of okay, i think okay. everybody I stand was okay that's incorrect that you said but, it, it but bilbo right. was like sealed up in them i think they were all you know <laughs> pretty seasick in there but um, but i do remember that happening now I also read on TV tropes that um, there's a there's a book in the Culture series by Ian M. Banks, uh, "Look to Windward," which is one I have but haven't read yet. Uh, it's apparently mentioned that lava rafting is an extreme sport that citizens of the Culture participate in uh, on unfinished habitats. So that, that sounds that sounds on brand to th- with the sort of thing that people of the Culture would do. It's a moderately extreme sport. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, one thing that's worth pointing out about about these examples and plenty of other examples is that very often, whether you're playing a video game or watching a movie, you find something kind of interesting about molten lava. Uh, in, in fiction, molten lava only seems dangerous if you come into physical contact with it. So if you fall yeah. into it or, um, or it's poured over you, that sort of, or you sink uh, you know, into the lake of lava, then you're doomed. But if you're just standing next to it or in close proximity to it, uh, you're fine, which of course would not be the case because lava is extremely hot, as we'll <laughs> Get into in this episode.
0: Yeah, that is funny. So the they they treat it as like it's like Hollywood acid. It's as if Mm -hmm. it only harms you by direct contact, a chemical reaction. But of course, you know, a real lake of lava or river of flowing uh, molten lava that that would be so hot that it is superheating the air directly above it. So like. That would be, you know, being above a lake of lava, I don't know exactly how hot it would be, but it would be to
1: some extent like getting right next to a heating element of a broiler. Yeah, yeah. We're talking pretty hot. We'll bust out some temperatures here in a bit, but uh, it's, it's a far cry from sort of the floor is lava scenario. Whether you're talking about uh, the uh, the Netflix uh, game show or just the uh, the good old fashioned childhood version of this, where uh, the floor is now uh, we're imagining it is lava, and you can as long as you don't touch it, you're fine. If you make the jump from uh, from the love seat to the couch uh, without touching the floor, then you're fine.
0: I think the more act if you want to play the same game but you want it to be more accurate, it should be like the floor is spikes. There you go. You know, <laughs> like spikes. They don't hurt you unless you actually like get on them and put your weight on them.
1: Oh, what kind of gory kids are playing the floor is spikes though? You know, somehow it's worse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> I I want my kids imagining wholesome, charring down to the bone, uh, complete just incineration of their flesh, turning into a a puff of carbon that goes up into the air.
1: You know, one of the weird things about this is that I know that Flora's Lava is the most popular of the childhood games. Did you play Flora's Lava as a child?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't know if most often we said it was lava or we said that it was like, you know, swamp water with alligators in it or, huh. or whatever. But we definitely played the games of can't touch the floor, got to stay on the furniture because it is some kind of hazard.
1: See, we would often do, and I have no idea where we got this, we would do the floor as a never-ending pit. And I'm not sure where we Ooh. got the idea of a never-ending pit from. I'm I'm trying to think back on, well, what what would I have been watching at the time? Like what movies had a never-ending pit in them? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't really remember what specifically we could be referring to there.
0: This is the version of the game played by a philosopher's child. Who, you know, <laughs> the real threat to them is that they'll fall forever and be left alone with their thoughts.
1: Well, I would think about this. Maybe it had some, you know, maybe it had something to do with the Masters of the Universe movie, where there's like a never-ending pit underneath Eternia, mm. or it's supposed to be a never-ending pit. I don't know, even know if they describe it as such, or maybe I just had this idea of a never-ending pit in my head and just assumed that that's what it was. You know, we're really getting on a tangent, but I will say, I think a lot of the terror of the idea of a bottomless pit
0: comes at the idea of uh, people imagining the very beginning of a fall where you're accelerating toward terminal velocity and it's mm-hmm. that feeling of you're going faster and faster as you fall down and it's really scary but actually pretty quickly you hit terminal velocity and then you would you would basically equalize so the acceleration stops and then you're just floating in the air forever so it is like a it is like a sensory deprivation tank that you just get to stay in for for the rest of
1: your life hmm well, anyway, we could keep going uh, on this, but, uh, but I thought that this all might be a good place to jump off and, and talk about the idea of lava boats, uh, both in terms of what we might loosely think of as actual lava boats, and we'll break that down a little bit, but we'll also even get into some considerations of what could be possible if you were just really insistent on, on creating a human-constructed vessel that can withstand a lake of lava. Well, how might you go about that? We'll get into that as well. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
0: Now, Rob, I know that what you have in mind when you say a lava boat is, is what we're talking about It is a boat that can float on lava, but my brain went in a different direction with this, which was not a boat floating in lava but a boat made of lava, or more specifically, of a type of volcanic rock known as
1: pumice. Mm. Will you go on this strange journey with me? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you decide to do a whole episode about lava boats, you, you, you take what you can get. Okay, this, is okay. kind of, this is kind of the This American Life um uh, principle of podcasting you know it, you know an american on this american life you, you know they're going to have a certain theme and not every segment of the episode is going to really match up 100% with whatever that theme happens to be but but you know it's a it's a guiding principle for the episode well i think this one puts us
0: in places that are that are just as awesome and weird as looking at the lake of lava and imagining floating on it
1: well let's do it let's go there
0: okay so pumice is a a very unique and interesting rock which has the strange distinction of being so low in density that it can often actually float on the surface of water uh, if you, you you may have observed this yourself if you ever had like a pumice stone in the bathtub or something but uh, if you've never seen this you can look up plenty of video it it exists all over the internet or you can even try it for yourself you could get a handful of pumice stones throw them into a bathtub or uh, you know tub of water sink full of water and there's a very good chance that they will float like styrofoam Uh, though you may get some duds i think not all pumice stones float but a lot do now Quite famously, almost all rocks uh, sink in water. So how, why is this one different? How does this rock end up being the one that is able to float on the water's surface? Well, pumice is a type of igneous rock, igneous meaning formed in fire. So this is a rock that's usually a byproduct of of violent or explosive volcanic eruptions. And I say violent or explosive as opposed to the slower, more gentle volcanic eruptions that you would typically see producing the things we've been talking about. You know, the rivers of molten lava on the surface or the stuff you'd see in the famous lava lake footage from Hawaii. A lot of the Hawaiian eruptions we we picture are are the more gentle types of eruptions, mm-hmm. uh, but more explosive or violent volcanic eruptions, which uh, those are the ones you'll typically see producing more of a kind of uh, an, a, an ash cloud, like a column rising into the sky, very sudden eruptions. Um, uh, these are more likely to release a lot of pumice. I think another characteristic of pumice-forming eruptions is that they tend to happen in places where the magma is richer in silica, which tends to make it more viscous. So you can think about uh, the, the different kinds of magma here. The magma that leads to a, a highly pumice-forming eruption is usually going to be thicker or stickier magma. Mm. But how does it turn into a rock that can float? So uh, if, if you imagine molten rock trapped underneath the the Earth's surface. This magma down there is actually not just composed of melted rock. It also contains various fluids in solution. So it might contain dissolved water vapor or CO2, sometimes I think uh, sulfur dioxide. And these gases are, uh, are all kept dissolved in the magma Because the magma is under very high pressure. It's underneath the ground. So you can think about the way that the CO2 dissolved in a carbonated beverage stays in solution until the can or the bottle is opened. And then the release of pressure allows some of that CO2 to start coming out of solution, turning back into gas and to start, you know, it starts floating to the top of the drink in the form of bubbles. That's Mm -hmm. because you have undone the, the pressure of the closed container. And it turns out that the process leading to the formation of pumice during a volcanic eruption is actually pretty similar to what happens when you open a carbonated beverage, except it involves uh, an extra step, which is sort of the, the freezing of that, that frothing, foamy product. So the process goes like this. You've got magma trapped beneath the Earth's surface, and it's got all this gas dissolved in it. And the gas, again, is kept in solution by high pressure. And then there is a volcanic eruption. In effect, the soda can is opened. The magma rushes to the surface where there is rapid depressurization. And now, because the pressure is lower, the dissolved CO2 and water and and other gases, they bolt from solution. And they start wanting to turn into gas, forming into bubbles. But at the very same time that the pressure is relieved and the gas wants to come out of solution and turn into bubbles, the magma is also cooling really rapidly. In effect, it is freezing the rock in place. And so what you end up with is a rock that is filled with what geologists call vesicles. These are little bubbles and hollows created by the depressurized gases that are sort of locked into crystalline form because the rock was cooling rapidly at the same time that all these bubbles were forming and what you get is a rock that's sort of the the rock equivalent of if you took the foamy head of a beer and froze it
1: yeah and you know this is a, this is something you can actually it, it- uh, you, you, if you were to pick up uh, ver- various lava rocks, you'll find that they are lighter than you might think. Uh, for this very reason, because they have all of these little little hollow pockets in them uh, that, uh, you know, that, that were essentially uh, you know little pockets of gas.
0: Yes, though. Though of course you can end up with to- very different kinds of yes. lava rock, but a lot of them are like this. Yeah, they, they've got this this lower density than other types of rock. I think, but it depends on a lot. of It depends on like the composition of the magma, mm-hmm. the conditions under which the the uh, the lava cooled once it was on the surface, and things like that. So, right. so you can end up with a lot of different products. But pumice is one of these, and pumice is is very low density. So you can end up with this very low density rock that's that's full of these little vesicles that allow it to float on the surface of the water. Uh, though, though I do think over time. Pumice tends to get waterlogged and lose its buoyancy, but that can take a long time. So you can get a pumice rock that, you know, it remains buoyant for for years after after the time it's created. But anyway, coming back around to the idea of lava boats, I think the really amazing thing about the ability of pumice to float is that when large masses of pumice are all formed together, They can all float together, leading Mm. to a phenomenon known as pumice rafts. So as one example of this, I was looking at a BBC article from 2019 called Vast Pumice Raft Found Drifting Through Pacific Ocean.
1: Yeah, this is really incredible and includes footage uh, that is also quite, uh, quite fascinating. Oh yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So in in August of 2019,
0: there were some Australian sailors that reported the discovery of a gigantic raft of floating pumice stones in the Pacific Ocean. This was out on the open sea east of Fiji. And the story is that uh, it was a couple of Australian sailors who were traveling between islands in a catamaran. And they accidentally piloted into this field of floating stones in the middle of the night. So I think they they didn't see what they were getting into. But then they realized something was up. And uh, the the raft of stones apparently slowed the vessel down and greatly reduced the wave action on the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. And the sailors investigated. They, They looked out in the moonlight and they shined their spotlight to try to see what was going on and saw this rock field in the water that extended as far as they could see. And at first, the pumice jammed their rudder, so it made it hard for them to steer, and they thought they might be stuck, but eventually they were able to get out of the raft zone. And when you hear the dimensions of this thing, and especially when you see what a giant pumice raft looks like, you can imagine how strange and frightening of an experience this might have been. Uh, so at the time of the article, it was estimated that this pumice raft was about 150 square kilometers or 58 square miles, which the article says is roughly equivalent to 20,000 football fields, though this wow. is the BBC. So I think that
1: is what we would we would call soccer, not football. Well, it's still 20,000 soccer fields. That's yeah. amazing.
0: I was looking up countries uh, by land area for comparison. Mm -hmm. And so this raft would indeed be larger than a bunch of the world's smallest countries. It's roughly the same area as the British Virgin Islands or Liechtenstein.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, But there are various videos you can look up uh, taken from people on boats who have gotten into one of these rafts. And by the way, that is not recommended. Multiple sources I was looking at were saying that. Uh, sailing into a pumice raft area can be dangerous and advising people not to try it but people had taken video of this and it's almost too weird to describe one video I found that was uh you know uh, relinked all over the internet it looks like the ship is sitting in an enormous desert or gravel parking lot except the parking lot extends all the way to the horizon and it is Undulating with waves yes. like the ocean because it is the ocean, just absolutely hallucinogenic apocalyptic imagery. if you can just imagine a moving rippling parking lot that goes as far as you can see.
1: yeah, I mean it's almost it's like they, they sailed into a tool video or something. it's uh, <laughs> and it does seem to stretch to the horizon. it's just yeah, yeah it's like it's, it's if you can imagine the sun coming up and you find yourself in this boat. On such a sea, it's like something out of a uh, rhyme of the Ancient Mariner.
0: Oh, totally. Like, yeah, you, you just want to get out of here.
1: Unhand me Greybeard
0: loon. Mm-hmm. Um, but according to this BBC report, the geoscientists that they consulted said that the pumice raft discovered in August 2019 was probably created by the eruption of an underwater volcano near Tonga earlier Ooh. that month. And the the rocks in this raft vary greatly in size. A lot of them appear to be sort of marble or pebble-sized, but others are big, you know, the size of basketballs. And uh, another weird thing is that this is apparently not even that unusual. The article cites a professor named Scott Bryan of the Queensland University of Technology saying that big pumice rafts like this appear roughly uh, once every five years or so in the area mm. due to volcanic eruptions and he interestingly links pumice rafts to historical reports of islands in the ocean that people spot on one journey but then later say they can't find again when they return to the same place so possibly some of these observations were actually not land but floating rafts of low density rock
1: that's fascinating because we we've discussed on past in past episodes about how various uh, mirages uh, and optical effects can uh, can lead to the misidentification of of islands where there are no islands uh, but but here's another possibility at least for for some regions of the world
0: right especially in the Pacific in like these uh, these volcanic chain areas yeah now these rafts don't last forever they disintegrate over time they probably break up into smaller and smaller clusters and then end up either sinking or being deposited on shores but yeah it's a truly Stunning uh, a- a act of planet Earth to, to to see these things, and I know what you're all wondering. I, I know you're <laughs> thinking, okay, since we're on the subject of lava boats, you're thinking, could a pumice raft function as an actual raft? Function as a boat for me? Like, could I walk on it? Could I travel on it? And I think generally, could I be answer-
1: shipwrecked upon it? Like that would be the <laughs> it seemed like the, the perfect scenario, right? Right. Uh, so
0: from everything I can tell, the answer to this is almost always no. <laughs> I I did find a few pictures of scientists uh, uh, sort of appearing to trudge around on a pumice raft in what looks like very shallow water. Uh, but I, I couldn't tell what was going on. There may be some kind of special condition involved in this one scenario. In general, I think most pumice rafts will no more support your weight than would a floating clump of Cheetos on the surface of a swimming pool. It's just like you just go right through it, so don't okay. try it. I think what would really be necessary in order for it to support you would be some way for it to like all be held together into a single mass, but this is like, you know, it's like floating uh, packing peanuts. It's just mm-hmm. like there there's nothing to like form a solid floor for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd have to somehow like like lash it all together, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, and e- well, even if you were able to do that, I might worry that it's not mm. uh, rigid enough. <laughs> so, right, like, right. You, it could turn into like a death trap. Like, you just jump into a tarp that's on the water surface, and it <laughs> closes around you.
1: Oh. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds horrifying.
0: But, 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 just because the raft won't support anything the size and density of a human being doesn't mean that these don't carry other biological passengers. And in fact, there is plenty of evidence that pumice rafts do exactly that, that they may serve as a fast, dispersal mechanism for many kinds of smaller life forms, especially marine life spreading between different zones of the ocean and uh, from coastal regions to other coastal regions, sort of island to island. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I was looking at one paper by Brian et al. I think this is actually Scott Brian, the same uh, researcher who was cited in that BBC article, uh, but uh, a bunch of other authors published in uh, PLOS one in 2012 called uh, Rapid Long-Distance Dispersal by Pumice Rafting. And here the authors note that actually pumice rafts make a, a wonderful uh, agent for transporting a, a, a big variety of marine organisms from one place to another – uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, they've got these little vesicles in them, all these little hollows and holes and bubbles, which make a great place for tiny organisms and larvae of, of larger organisms to hide from predators while they're uh, being transported uh, across the wa- the water. Hmm. But anyway, they, they write, quote, here we report on a significant recent pumice rafting and long distance dispersal event that occurred across the Southwest Pacific following the 2006 explosive eruption of Home Reef Volcano in Tonga. Uh, and they say, uh, according to their their research, they found uh, more than 80 species and a substantial biomass underwent a more than 5,000 kilometer journey in seven to eight months by by way of this pumice raft. And so, uh, they include like some photos of pieces of pumice salvaged from, from some of these floating rafts. And it's funny how much life that they're just coated with by the end. Like, so they have these photos where they identify all the different life forms that are clinging to these floating rocks. They've got bryozoans, uh, anemones, mollusks, uh, goose barnacles, corals, cyanobacteria, macroalgae, uh, uh, some other things I'm I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Like the, these can become sort of these these rafts of life going from place to place.
1: Yeah, these are these are impressive. Like all this just
0: accreted life on the rock. And I found another interesting relationship. This one just hypothetical. I mean, the previous like it, it is clear that these pumice rafts actually do harbor plenty of life forms and transport them around in the ocean. But another interesting hypothesis is that. Floating rafts of pumice could possibly have been a good environment for the the origins of life on Earth. Uh, mm. This is argued, for example, in a paper I was looking at from the journal Astrobiology by uh, Martin D. Brazier et al. Uh, Brazier, I think, is a, a professor at Oxford University. And uh, the paper is called Pumice as a Remarkable Substrate for the Origin of Life. And essentially, the authors here argue that floating rafts of pumice actually meet a lot of the criteria that we would expect for the the place for life to first evolve on Earth. Uh, They give a number of reasons, they say, uh, related to the physical properties of pumice itself. Uh, So just reading from their abstract, they give four reasons. They say, first, during eruption, it develops the highest surface area to volume ratio for any rock type. Second, it is the only known rock type that floats as rafts on the air water interface and then becomes beached in the tidal zone for long periods of time. Third, it is exposed to an unusually wide variety of conditions, including dehydration. Finally, from rafting to burial, it has a remarkable ability to adsorb metals, organics, and phosphates, as well as to host organic catalysts such as zeolites and titanium oxides. And then they say these remarkable properties now deserve to be rigorously explored in the laboratory and the early rock record. So this would sort of match with uh, some of the other interesting ideas we've talked about how um, a lot of researchers are thinking good candidate areas for the origins of life on Earth would be like areas that repeatedly got wet and dry in cycles or areas mm. that were right at the interface of water and dry land because that that kind of change, like hydration and dehydration of uh, of uh, sort of uh, gatherings of organic molecules could have triggered some of the chemical evolution that gave rise to, you know, the the organic molecules you're looking for for the origins of life and possibly for the structural formations of cells themselves.
1: Yeah, and if and if, this, if this were the case too, this would be another example of volcanoes being both – you know Creator and destroyer you know known for their, their very destructive properties, but also uh, we have numerous examples of how they they bring new things into being uh be be it the creation of, of whole island chains or uh, you know cr- creating more land on existing volcanic islands or just creating fertile soil uh, from which uh, you know all sorts of uh, of plants can grow totally yeah. So anyway,
0: I, I like this idea. Maybe in the future, we'll come back to uh, more uh, more of the relationship or the possible relationship between pumice and the origins of life. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love –
2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Now, another example of of what we might call lava boats or or lava rafts or sometimes referred to as such, uh, you can also find in in the real world. Um, and uh, there's, there's actually some fabulous footage of this, uh, of this uh, phenomenon that, uh, that came out in, uh, in recent years, uh, particularly in, in regard to uh, 2018 uh, um, volcanic activity at Kilauea. Uh, what we're talking about here with lava boats, lava rafts, uh, are simply accreted lava masses that move downstream in lava flows. Uh, they look sort of like rafts or boats. Um, And as they move, more lava can adhere to them, and they accrete into bigger lava balls. And to be clear, the official terminology here is not lava boats or lava rafts. It is lava balls or accretionary balls. Uh, But lava boats kind of took social media by storm, especially uh, in regard to some of the footage that was making the rounds, which is quite impressive. It looks like this big black sort of Star Destroyer type uh, shape. Uh in the lava flow, making its way sort of towards the camera,
0: you're wanting to recreate your revenge of the sith scene. This is exactly what you're looking for,
1: yeah, or you can you can imagine like a burning skeleton like jamming on a metal guitar, like standing yeah. on top of this thing it's yeah. uh it's very impressive. it should have its own do warrior. yeah. <laughs> so uh this this is awesome footage. you know definitely ch- uh, look it up if you're you're interested and it also can help sort of illustrate what sometime, we sometimes encounter with lava fields in which an upper rigid crust rests or you could even say floats on a layer of fluid lava. but this would be you know an, an even more stark example of that of that uh, that uh, situation uh-huh. Now from here, I thought we might move on into the discussion of sort of i guess speculative lava boats. And you you mean boats more literally now. Yes. Now we're getting into the idea of like a a vessel that humans made. And in this case that humans make and then like set adrift in a lake of lava and then attempt to climb into said vessel and maybe make a, a voyage halfway across the lake. Take me there. Yeah, perhaps to defeat Bowser or something. I don't know. But um, so uh, if you haven't watched the 2016 documentary Into the Inferno, uh, I, I think we, we, we both would highly recommend this. It's, uh, it was written and directed by Werner Herzog and featured British uh, volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer. Uh, both of these gentlemen were guests on our show back in, I believe, this was like late 2020, in promotion of their documentary, Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds. Yeah,
0: I think uh, Into the Inferno was the documentary they had done right before this one.
1: Right, yeah, uh, dealing with with uh, volcanoes, mm-hmm. and uh, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, if you get a chance to to watch it, you you definitely should. If you're interested in volcanoes or you know the work of Werner Herzog, uh, you know definitely worth picking picking up. Um, Into the Inferno features footage of volcanologist Maurice and Katia Kraft, a French husband and wife duo. Uh, the crafts were pioneers in the film documentation of volcanoes uh, notable for their sometimes very you know close proximity um, filming of lava flows uh, a lot of very dangerous at times looking footage uh, and uh, sadly they did both perish in a 1991 uh, pyroclastic flow on Mount unzen in Japan mm-hmm but the, these were these were this was a couple that, that loved volcanoes, uh, and I was reading a little bit about them in uh, Fire in the Earth, Fire in the Soul, The Final Moments of Maurice and Katia Craft by John uh, Calderazzo, published in Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment in 1993. And uh, in this, the, the author notes uh, the following, quote, and this is speaking of Maurice here, he loved to say how fantastic it would be to one day build a special boat, a kind of titanium arc, to put in on a lava flow. Off they'd ride down a steaming mountain, flying the French flag and <laughs> waving to all their friends as they rode a glowing river into the sea.
0: Well, on one hand, that's beautiful, but I'm also uh, amused by the, the the addition
1: of the French flag. Well, you know they, they were French, why not? Uh, but sure. Uh, now i don 't think we 're supposed to to take this <laughs> We claim this lava for france <laughs> Um is you, know, you got to get on it 's literally getting on the ground floor of new uh yeah. <laughs> of, of, of of new land. Uh, now, I don't think we're meant to take this, you know, real seriously. The, these were two individuals who simply loved volcanoes, loved volcanic activity. They lived for volcanoes. Uh, Calderazzo quotes them as saying that volcanoes were like are like blind wild animals that one must observe, like a quote mad witch doctor. Uh, I think the idea is like it's it's got indigestion. And you need to watch it for a very long time to see what what's what's going on with it. Um, they also talked about how normal mountains are dead, and that they prefer the living mountains of volcanoes when you love volcanoes so much, you have to slag normal mountains right so you know I think it 's safe to, to you know to say they, they could just be you know they 're being a little poetic like we love uh. volcanoes so much that if we could ride a ship on the on the flow of lava, we would, uh, but at the same time it 's still a terrific vision. Uh, you know, this high tech vessel sailing across lava. I I was looking around. I imagine somebody has has explored this more in science fiction, especially like pulp science fiction of the old days. Like there has to be some story about like a uh you know a volcanic planet and there being some sort of a a volcanic ship. I would be shocked if this is not shown if this has not appeared in uh, in Doctor Who at some point or another. Oh yeah. So, you, so if, you, if you're wondering, well, could, could this exist? Could we make something like this? Well, luckily, volcanologist and science writer Robin Andrews chimed in on this very topic uh, for a 2017 Forbes.com article titled, Here's How to Make a Boat to Sail Over Deadly Lava. And and he, he uses uh, the, the dreams of the crafts, of uh, particularly Maurice Craft, as kind of the jumping off point for this as well. Okay, what's his plan here? Okay, so... Um, he points out, there's, first of all, you've got to take into account those temperatures. Like, like, first and foremost, they may ignore the temperatures in the movies, but you need to be aware of them. Uh, first of all, right. he, he writes that lava flows tend to run 1,000 degrees Celsius or uh, 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit on average. And lava lakes can exceed that to a max of, uh, of, uh, of, of somewhere around uh, 1,100 degrees Celsius or 2,012 degrees Fahrenheit so it's it's really hot um, yes, you can if you're going to be any, anywhere close to that for you know, certainly for a boat ride if you're going to build a boat, you have to take into account that um, it's going to be that hot you're going to need physical protection you're also going to need some sort of containment suit or uh, you know oxygen to supply so that you're not just breathing in toxic gases that are either going to kill you dead out there on the lake or just like permanently damage your body. So, he says, okay, if you're going to build this boat, it probably needs to be steel, as steel melts at um, 1,370 degrees Celsius or 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you you don't want to be in a boat that melts in the lava lake. You want to be in a boat that, that doesn't quite melt in the lava lake. <laughs> that almost melts. Yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, by the way, some, some of this may, may sound fam- uh, like familiar territory. Uh, of, co- of course, we did an episode on the One Ring from, uh, uh, from the Lord of the Rings discussing just what sort of metal would melt or be destroyed in Mount Doom, but would not melt or be destroyed in a medieval forge. Mm. So, if you want more metallurgy, uh, that's, uh, that's an episode to go back to. Okay. All right, but uh, go, going back here to the work of uh, Robin Andrews, next he points out that you need an interior lining in that boat that's non-flammable and also highly heat-resistant. Otherwise, the boat would just simply cook you. I think he, right. he writes that your your skin would stick to it, uh, which, is, which sounds horrifying.
0: Yeah, even if the boat didn't melt, it would essentially turn into a frying pan, right? You're writing mm-hmm. in a frying pan on the heating element.
1: Yes. <laughs> so he writes the following about possible lining uh, options here. Quote, There are a variety of plastics you can use, and if you uh, aren't worried about fire started by rogue lava blebs, you could even use wet wood. Uh, If you want to be particularly high-tech, grab some hafnium carbide with a melting point of around 4,000 degrees Celsius, 7,232 degrees Fahrenheit, and very high thermal resistance. These would ensure you don't get a little sizzled inside your boat. You could even use hafnium carbide to make the boat but seeing as it's unfathomably expensive, steel's a far cheaper option here. Just looked it up; hafnium
0: carbide is said to have a melting point of thirty nine hundred degrees Celsius. So you're really good to go there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he also mentions that you'd probably need to paddle with similar material. You know, you'd have you'd have to make your paddle or your 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 pole out of that as well. I guess it depends on how ambitious you are. Are you just happy to be floating? um on or down the you know the lake or flow of lava or do you do you feel like you need to actually build up speed
0: wait where do you end up does this mean you just ride this thing until it dumps you out
1: into the ocean um well i guess it depends i mean if you're just in a lake of 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 lava like in a crater like um kilauea iki then you might just be floating out there until the like the vortex sucks you down, or until, or if it's if there's a fountain of uh, of lava going on until like that burns you up, or or drops a bunch of bathtub sized um, uh, blobs of lava on top of you, or uh, yeah, if it's a flow going into the ocean, maybe you ride that out. But that's going to be there's, there's going to be some rapids in there well a- another hazard we haven't even uh, mentioned yet is that if you actually do ride this
0: all the way down to the water's edge and then you plunge into the water where the the molten lava is hitting the water uh, you need to be careful there because another th- a totally separate thing I was reading about that we haven't even gotten to yet is this stuff called lays. Have you have you read about this, Rob? The so-called lava haze. No, no. Tell me about the lays. Well, un- unfortunately, th- this has actually led to uh, at least a few human deaths in the past. But it's this type of steam or haze or mist that billows up when uh, molten lava falls into the ocean. I think I was reading about it directly in connection with Kilauea, actually. It's dangerous for multiple reasons. Number one, that these clouds, because of some kind of chemical reaction that happens, the clouds are full of hydrochloric acid. It's like stomach acid, which you don't want getting into your lungs. Uh, but I think it may also have uh, like other types of uh, highly corrosive acids, hydrofluoric acid, uh, of course, lots of carbon dioxide. But then the uh, another part is that it's full of tons of extremely tiny little shards of volcanic glass that get carried oh. up in the steam. So basically, you don't want to get anywhere near this stuff. If you ever see lava dripping into the water, it's beautiful to observe from a distance, but you don't want to go near it.
1: So if you're listening to this episode and you're you're, you're thinking, well, I could do this, I could pull this off. No, do not. <laughs> Please do not attempt this at home. Or, or, or in Volcano National Park, or in, or near any volcano you have you happen to be visiting. Please keep a respectful distance. And that's just respecting yourself, right? Right. Though certainly, if you have a chance uh, to 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 get within a safe distance of any kind of volcanic activity to visit, you know, Volcano National Park, or, or really any. Uh, any v- volcanic location, uh, definitely check it out. I mean, these these are the the living mountains. These are these are amazing places. And even if you're visiting a place that's not quite alive anymore, uh, you know, sort of recently dead mountains like that alone, uh, it, it, it haunted by a particular energy that you you just don't necessarily encounter in uh, in, in other parts of the world. Totally, yeah. But obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Um, Have you visited uh, some volcanic uh, uh, locations and you have additional sightings you would like to share? Have you seen anything? Uh, you know, like these uh, these uh, the, the floating pumice or these uh, or these uh, these lava balls. Uh, let us know. Uh, you know, what are some volcanic terrains that you've explored? Uh, and likewise, what are some volcanic uh, situations you've explored in uh, fantasy and fiction that match up with what we've been talking about? What are we missing out there in the world, the wide, the wide, wild world of uh, of sci-fi exploration? There are some some tremendous scenes of ships sailing on a sea of lava. Lava and so forth. Uh, write in and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Huge thanks,
0: as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, to tell us about your lava boat fantasies, or uh, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you.
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio
0: app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.